Orange and Black Podcast, an award-winning, unofficial podcast on Prince. For over 10 years, giving you Prince news, reviews, trivia, and all things happening in the Prince world. Featuring the host, Rob S. I think the craziest thing that's happened is when Prince invited me and Captain to meet with him in New York in 2010. Captain. Anytime Prince gets on the guitar and he starts getting up near that top fret, just get ready to blow your head off. Player. Oh my God, that's the Minneapolis sound right there. Toe Jam. There's just layers and layers of stuff going on in his music all the time in every speaker. Find Peach and Black on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Hi, this is Eden Nelson. This is Tommy Young. Hi, this is Larry Graham. This is Mr. Hayes. And you're listening to... And you're listening to... And you're listening to... And you're listening to... The Peach and Black Podcast. The Peach and Black Podcast. The Peach and Black Podcast. The Peach and Black Podcast, baby. Now over to our host, Rob S. I should be opening up with hello, 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 but instead today it's going to go like this. Well, well, well. It's the 10-year anniversary year of the Peach and Black podcast, and it's also the 10-year anniversary of Prince's seminal classic 2009 album, Lotus Flower. So we decided what better way than to celebrate by having a super special guest on our show and today's special guest is Richard Furch. Richard is a mixer and engineer who's been part of some of the biggest albums released since the 2000s such as Outcast, Speakerbox and the Love Below Project, Usher's Confessions and of course Prince's Lotus Flower. He has amassed credits on six Grammy-winning albums out of over 20 Grammy-nominated albums. Today, he continues to craft mixes with exceptional sonic quality and a focus on bringing out the emotion of the music. And of course, as always, the Peach and Black podcast panel from left to right, it's player. Nothing ever really changes. You've never had a voice. Toe Jam. Celibate Mushroom Canopy. And Captain. It's 10th anniversary. Wow. And it's Rob S. Rounding out the Peach and Black podcast panel. We welcome Richard to the Peach and Black podcast. So um, one of the things that we wanted to hopefully find out a little bit more about is not just about Prince, but also a little bit about your history and your kind of story and journey. So um, I'll uh, ask Player to uh, lead off with the first question. Uh, Thank you, Richard, for joining us on the show. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, how you got started in the music business as a mixer and what your first major artist project that you worked on? Yeah, of course. Uh, Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you reaching out. I am, I'm German. (laughs) That's why I sound funny. (laughs) No, I, uh, I grew up in Berlin. Uh, in the in the 90s and I am actually a, um, a pianist jazz and classical trained but also at the time I was a teenager so I wanted to be a rock star every teenager wants to be a rock star don't tell me otherwise come on yeah uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> so I practiced and I played in bands and I did I played in bands that were questionable and my playing was questionable and then my playing got better so good that at one point I decided I wanted to be a jazz musician so I practiced a lot for that and was trying to get into the German conservatories for, for jazz music and didn't quite make it there. You know, they had to, basically they took about four people every year. So not only did you have to be really, really good, but you also had to be better than everybody minus four people. 
<laughs> so that was kind of a moment where I figured this might not work out the way I'm thinking this. So I took my piano and all my knowledge and what have you, and I went to Berkeley College of Music in Boston, ah. not knowing not knowing that that would mean I basically emigrated my country. I mean, at the time, I thought I would come back, but hey, here we are, 20 yes. years later, and I am not back. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, while I was there, I studied a bunch of more jazz and rock and pop and whatever, because you have a lot of popular music there. But then I realized that unless you're Herbie Hancock, making a living as a jazz musician, is uh, that's, that's quite a steep hill to climb. The funny part is actually that I met Herbie Hancock with Prince later. <laughs> But it's funny. So but he was always a hero of mine, of course, both of them, uh, both of them. But so I decided, you know what, maybe somebody like Herbie or somebody like, I don't know, Whitney Houston or whoever is big at the time would never hire me as a pianist. But what if I were an engineer? What if I make records? What if I could be really good at the thing that makes musicians sound good? Be a cat like them, but from a different angle. That's kind of where my where wow, my focus smart. changed. Smart, very smart. So and, and uh, from then on, I was kind of like uh, I was bugged by the idea. Okay, I can't be the best pianist, but I can be the best recording engineer and mixer. So <laughs> it changed. I started practicing like hell on that one. Uh, I got really, really good at it, and I got a degree at it at Berkeley. It's summa cum laude, like that means anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, it means something. It means something in the in the Berkeley world, of course, but it doesn't mean yeah. anything in the real world. But I did pretty well for myself. And then finally, uh, you know, it was time to graduate. I have a bachelor in music production and engineering. Yay! <laughs> and I moved to New York. And this is why you thought I was living in New York because I still have my number from there. I moved yeah. to New York. I worked at one of the big studios there uh it was called sound on sound which is it went out of business in between but just came back in a different location so the person who was my first boss actually just came back into the business with a new studio that he actually won a tech award for the design of so i'm kind of proud of my my upbringing through this one studio that survived all these years in different ways you know and there we did a bunch of uh, hip-hop at night hip-hop and uh, r&b during the day it would be a lot of broadway jingles jazz so basically like a whole great education in all kinds of genres which is i think really uh, i mean that was what what i was looking for basically exposed me to the best of the best in their particular particular genre so there i would work with um who comes to mind, Marcus Miller, but then uh, later, you know, Beyonce, uh, Outkast. Well, sorry, Beyonce would be Destiny's Child at the time, Kelly Rowland, Outkast, Jay-Z, um, a bunch of R&B acts, Carl Thomas, I don't know if you know them, 112. Mm, um, yeah. yeah, I was going to say anyone we might know. Or... <laughs> yeah, well, I hope so. I hope you know, I hope you know Jay-Z, my favorite. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's funny. My very, very yeah, just first some just some minor just some minor acts you worked with. So. <laughs> yeah. Just the very first um, gig I had there as an assistant was uh, being on a session for Cypress Hill and uh, DJ Muggs, which was oh, for wow. me like this is like kind of the the background I came from. I listened to a lot of hip hop, a lot of like Rage Against the Machine, but then also I was a huge Michael Jackson fan. I was a huge Prince fan. I probably had everything he released, including the bootlegs at the time, which obviously he would probably not be so happy about, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Can't do anything about it. I had, I had good stuff. 
<laughs> so you know, so my my big first credits were uh, yeah, Jay Z, the Blueprint, uh, recorded some on that, and then um, Outcast, That's a great uh, album, yeah, Outcast, yeah. The Love Below, uh, that was amazing. Oh, oh That's yeah, it's now a Diamond album after all these years. It's classic um, after classic, right? In hip hop culture, it's just massive releases. Yeah, yeah, and then you know, I was working with Terror Squad and LL Cool J, and uh, who else would be? Uh, oh, um, Most Def. Oh, I'm super jealous now. <laughs> I mean, there was it was just a lot of hip hop, and actually, that is the maybe the funny part is that that was the reason why I left the city because. I love hip hop. I'm like hands down. I love the sound. I love Amen. The grittiness, Amen, brother. Yeah. But it was it was a hard gig. I mean, that's the kind of thing where you have twenty four hour sessions. A little Kim session, I remember, was seventy two hours long, and you just don't go make it happen, right? <laughs> and that's the gig. Yeah. That's fun. That it actually feels very much rock and roll. But after some time, you go like, hey, what else can I do as an engineer? And that's when I moved to LA. But uh, that might answer your question. Yeah, those were the first records where I said, well, this is this is going in the right direction. I'm making records with great people in great rooms for great labels. And so this is kind of working out the way I plan it. Wow, that's amazing. All those artists are favorites of mine. Yeah. And so from there, how did you connect to Prince? How's the path moved towards meeting Prince that way? It's a very random thing. And so now that you're saying that you've been doing this podcast for 10 years, I'm pretty sure... Uh, you probably in, uh, interviewed a bunch of people who would say the same thing, that the the way of meeting Prince was probably pretty unforeseen and maybe even accidental. Mm-hmm. Just like us, the way the way that we <laughs> met up with Prince was very random and crazy. But we'll tell you, we'll, we'll get to that later. I need to hear that story too. Yeah, mine was, so I basically, in 2004, I came to LA from New York. My plan was to leave a little bit of the R&B behind and go straight into like, West Coast rock, like the, uh, thinking, and you know, whoever is the new Red Hot Chili Peppers, I'm sure I'm going to record those. And maybe I will, uh, you know, hook up with Rick Rubin and make great records. That was the oh, plan. That was, sorry, that nice. was not the plan, but that was the, let's say that was the wish, because I, I can't say that I made exactly those moves, right? But that was the reason for going. And, um, you know, at the same time, you also have to make a living. So what actually happened was, well, the thing that makes you famous, or at least um, comfortable and known for in one genre, will be the thing that keeps you going. So before I knew, I basically made the same records on the West Coast that I made on the East Coast. It's kind of funny. In that way, you could really say I was uh, unsuccessful in the plan of changing um, theaters to change my life. <laughs> I just changed uh, changed to a nicer climate and made the same records. Yeah. <laughs> like my wife always says, you know, that those are really not not bad problems to have. I mean, I'm here, my career so far is over 20 years long in the music business, so I'm not actually complaining, I'm just describing. <laughs> yeah. So actually, so when I met Prince was actually 2008. I can tell you exactly when, it was August 2nd. Uh, and I only know this because somebody had a birthday that day. Right. So the story is, like I said, like it's very strange. And the more I read about, everybody has a strange story like that. Mm. We were at a studio in LA, a big studio called Chalice, which is in Hollywood. And I was working with an artist called Christina Milian. She's actually oh nice. She's, she's around. She's doing more of the social media correspondent thing, and also she's an actor. I just saw some posts that she's she's in a Sony show right now, which is cool. 
sweetest girl, really nice, super beautiful, like they say, inside and out, right? Like, I mean, she's, yep. she's stunning uh, and, and she's really, really a sweetheart. So I, I, I was fortunate to be able to be on the other side of the glass and just record her. That was awesome. Uh, and so, you know, we, we had been re- working on a few records for a few weeks or so. And she mentioned, well, Prince might come by tonight at like 3 a.m. And I'm like, and I'm, I'm just sitting there like going like, okay, like, like why? <laughs> you know, <laughs> better hide the bootlegs. I mean, like, okay, hide the bootlegs quick. That would be kind of cool, but why? And it turns out they are friends and I don't know where from, but uh, they've, uh, they've been hanging out, etc. So sure enough, I mean, at 3 a.m., door opens, uh, his uh, bodyguard comes in, checks that we're not crazy. <laughs> and then he walks in and it's like the nicest guy ever. And uh, this is funny. So now I just told you about my background. So I've, I've worked with quite a bit of people that are pretty up there in Echelon. So I'm, I'm actually not, I'm not starstruck ever. And I make it this, make an exception with him just because in my, in my upbringing, he was so important. Like he was basically, he was more special than most of the artists I worked with because I was a fan. Actually, I, I can tell you right away, I actually was a late fan. Of course, you know Purple Rain or whatever, but actually the first time that somebody really said, listen to this, was the Diamonds and Pearls album. And uh, and I was like, geez, this is amazing. And like I, I and then backwards from there, I got all the albums, etc. It's about the same as me. I, I jumped on, yeah, about 92, 91, 92. That's when I came on. So, yeah. Very similar. You know, like, I mean, when, when Purple Rain actually came out, I was too young for it to, I mean, you you hear it, but it's not, It's it wasn't for me. How old was I, 10, 11? I don't even know. Um, uh, so, uh, so it makes sense that, that I was exposed to it a little bit later. So he was special in my world. And actually, I mean, there was a time when I was trying to figure out, like, how do you, how do you make a song like Get Off? You know, like I was trying to do MIDI programming when, when I was... 14, 15, you know, so I was trying to figure out how, how did you guys make these sounds? So, so what, all I'm trying to say is him and Michael Jackson would be like the two people where I would go like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm in the same room with you. While there are people mm, out yes. there where you just go like, I can't believe this person's actually walking in front of me. And here, a little side note, the funny part is that I was in the room when one of my producer client was on the phone with Michael Jackson. Uh, right and so he he, this is the time of the blackberries right so he has a blackberry and he's like he's talking he's like "Uh mm uh-huh and i have no idea what's going on and (laughs) he just he puts the phone on mute like on from his side the microphone he holds it out and it's just he mouths to mouths to me like michael jackson (laughs) <laughs> and, then, and sure enough it's michael jackson like you're talking about what he wants to work on and i'm just standing in the room going like okay this is actually happening so finally <laughs> the funny part is we never worked with him but we that's how close i got on him but um cool. that was just a side note but um yeah so with prince it was just a special special moment so now like connecting to where that happens so he comes into the room there's about i don't know six seven of us with the assistant engineers and a couple of musicians and maybe there was a friend of christina's in there too and he's he's like really nice to everybody and of course we all hear the stories that you and i all know so i'm just thinking oh this he's the nicest guy ever that's this is awesome and he kicks it around with christina for a while and then he's just like uh, you know let me let me hear what you're working on and uh, so we're starting to play him the song that we just finished that day. 
I remember this, like I'm standing at the board and I don't know how he likes music. So I'm turning it up a little bit and just kind of motioning to him, you know, do you want it loud? <laughs> or, <laughs> or do you have like really, really, like in my head, I was like, well, you, maybe you have really, really uh, special hearing that you can't hear. Like, I don't know. Who knows, right? So, but he's like, he he motions to me like, no, 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 turn it up all the way. Luckily, we're in one of those huge rooms with big subwoofers. <laughs> and so it's pretty damn loud in there. <laughs> okay, so the song kind of plays top to bottom. You know, he listens to the whole thing. And then it stops, and then I swear, and Nate, I'm not making this up. The first thing that comes out of his mouth, he's like, so who mixed that? And I'm just standing there like, well, well, I mean, I guess that's me. I mean, the song was not even <laughs> done yet, right? But I, but I engineered it. The What he heard, I did. So I'm not lying here, you know, but it was not mixed. It was not, it was somewhere in the middle of it. So, well, I guess that would be me. And then he says, well, then I need your number. Nice. <laughs> and it's just like one of those things where you go, really? Like all these things where you need managers or who do you meet or who do you call or you send a discography and like, oh, what have you done recently? And this kind of shit, that's all out the window. It's just like, I like yeah. that. Hey, I could work with you. It was so natural. And in a way you go, you know, because he's the obviously the consummate musician, you go like it comes from the most honest heart. Like he he didn't have to say that. It's not like he walked in and was looking for an engineer. I'm I'm gonna guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he basically just liked it and he was like, Whoa, I could use that kind of knowledge for some reason, you know? So in that way, uh I was obviously very much taken aback and going like this is crazy. And gave him my number. Of course I didn't have a business card that day because that's that's always the way <laughs> you scribble it on a little piece of paper that the studio had and just gives it to him like <laughs> here prince this is my telephone number and my email <laughs> <laughs> like the whole like remembering it now it's just so i mean obviously i've i've talked about the story a few times here and there but but every time i come to this point it's so bizarre you know it doesn't even matter if, if I'm good or bad at what I'm doing. Just the, the sheer chance that that could happen either way. Like it could be the best sounding thing ever and not everybody would go like, well, then I want to work with you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it could be. So it was just like a very fateful day for me. And sure enough, so, you know, he leaves at one point. Um, I go home. It's probably six in the morning. And I tell my wife, you can't believe what just happened. Prince came in and he took my number. And then I was like basically falling asleep going like well i mean nothing's gonna come from that <laughs> like why would it you know this is crazy maybe he was kind maybe he was playing a game with christina like i like your music so i'll show you by i don't know mm. you know and then two weeks later his people called me and said yo do you want to do you want to record tonight <laughs> tonight <laughs> oh yeah that's how it happened yep. <laughs> It's it's a cool story. I, I I love for forever and ever. I will probably not top that story. Yeah, it's a it's a good one. So then from that, you're basically employed to do the Lotus Flower project. Is that right, or or was it stuff before that album had even been conceived? Um, it's, it was very interesting. It was um. So this was a Saturday when he called me. He says, "Can you meet with Prince?" I mean, sorry, he didn't call me, and his his guy called me. We met. And that's when I, I, the same day is when I actually met Morris Hayes, who is, is funny because he's such a down to earth person and one of my favorite people ever. Yeah. But I'm also like kind of in, um, in awe of him because I'm a keyboard player and he played keyboards for friends. So if, to me, he's, he's the bee's knees, yeah. right? So he walked in and it's almost like a second, 
uh, his second uh, starstruck Star moment Star. because he's cool. Um, uh, he would kind of think that's funny now because we're friends, but um, he's awesome. Anyway, but um, so we were just talking with him and Prince. We we're talking about what he was trying to do. And he said, well, it's not sounding the way I want it to sound. And I looked around the control room. It was kind of at a house. And I saw some gear that I said, you know, I wouldn't use that. I'm not saying that I know exactly what it sounds like, you know, but it's not my first choice. And maybe that's part of what you're not liking because literally, you know, he's trying to describe to me what what's missing. And I'm trying to describe to him that I think I can do that, you know? So it's kind of like a little dating dance. Was this in L.A. or where was this? Yeah, this is in L.A. Yeah. So and then he basically said, well, OK, that sounds all of that sounds good. So let's let's start recording tomorrow. And I'm like, <laughs> OK, uh, where are we recording? <laughs> oh, yeah, here. And I'm like, OK, so but you just told me that you don't have. I just told you that you don't have the the gear that I think you should have to not have it sound exactly what like you don't like it. Right. So he basically, can you, can you, you know, can you build a studio so that we can record tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, okay. <laughs> All right. I mean, what, what are you going to do, right? Say no and go home and that was the end of it? No, of course I'd say yes. I'm like, crap, crap, crap. Now what? <laughs> so uh, I was, I, I went on the phone with a bunch of rental companies, et cetera. And because I was trying to get exactly what I wanted, um, for these things, um, microphone preamps, etc. cetera. Uh, and uh, one, one guy, Brian McCurry at Platinum Rentals, he, got, he actually figured that out for me because he, the other problem was not, it was not only the problem that was last minute, but the other problem was that it was Sunday. So the guy was able to rent me everything and literally like I got back to the house at like, I don't know, 1 p.m. Sunday and by 7 p.m. we recorded like about half of what uh, Lotus Flower became um, with uh, Cora Dunham and Josh Dunham as the rhythm section and then Prince played guitar and that stuff. Cool. We made a list of questions each and, and I think we all had the same basic question and that was... Because the Lotus Flower album seems to have like two different rhythm sections. It's got the stuff with Michael Bland and Sonny T, and then it's got the stuff with Cora and Josh. So were you recording the stuff with Cora and Josh? And so the Michael Bland and Sonny T stuff had already been done. Is that right? Um, that's probably correct. Yeah, because I actually, unfortunately, I've, I've not recorded Michael B and Sonny Thompson. Um, oh, okay. I, I worked with them later on some other projects and life stuff that they did. But for the album, I did. So... The basic session was most, that was Josh and Cora, yeah. Cool. So that would have been songs like Dreamer and, and Boom? Yeah, I, 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 mean, off the, I mean, I don't know off the, the top of all, all the names now, but I did record yeah. Dreamer, I did record Boom, I did Crimson and Clover. I had to, if I have the lifting in front of me, hold on, let me peek that, then um, maybe I can tell you exactly which ones I did. Money? Uh, money is an interesting one. I did, uh, Money was started beforehand. But I did overdubs on that. I think all the horns, and then I mixed it. Um, let me see. Yes, uh, boom, crimson clover. I did. I didn't start. Feel good. Feel better. Feel wonderful. But I finished it. Yeah, that was an older song, I think. So yeah, yeah. Seventy-seven Beverly Park. I started, I believe. Uh, Wall of Berlin was finished. I did money the mix and uh, some overdubs. I did Dreamer from the top, and I did all of MPL sound except for. No More Candy For You, which is an older song. Ah, Ooh. interesting. Yeah. Did you do anything with the Bria 
the third disc or that was already done? That was already done. I had nothing to do with her. I met her a bunch of times. She was there and then, uh, you know, she was very nice. Uh, but her album was already done before I came uh, here. Yeah. It's fascinating to just think all these different side projects he had going on all at once. Yeah. And an interesting part, I mean, there was a story. I mean, it's not really a story, but at one point he was trying to figure out, so are we, are we going to put out a double album or how are we going to do that? And uh, he came up with the idea, well, what if I do a little album and then add Elixir? Basically, that's the way to get it to the masses. And that's how it became a triple album. So my next question was, um, how much creative input did Prince give you as an engineer in terms of like things like microphone choices and setup, recording techniques, and maybe like layering suggestions, this kind of thing? Um, did you have a lot of say on that? Or was it more just a matter of sort of being the hired engineer physically present to set up, you know, what Prince wanted you to set up? It was kind of a mixture of both. It was very interesting. Um, there were moments when, for instance, I remember this very, very detailedly. There was uh, Fred Jonet. He was the harmonica player. He was playing on a couple of songs at Sunset Sound. And, uh, you know, he came in and they were chatting a little bit and um, then it was time to record him. And I basically, I asked Prince, so you're looking for something Toots Telemann, like very straight jazz, pristine kind of sound, right? Or like something swampy harmonica-ish, you know? And his answer was, well, you're the engineer. <laughs> As in, you know, it was, uh, some people would have said maybe that's offensive. Some people would say... Maybe that's your carte blanche, right? But it was somewhere in between. Mm -hmm. He's like, no, I, I trust you to find a sound and I will probably say if I really don't like it, you know, but, but the, the, let's go back to the beginning. He hired me because he heard something he liked. So the, yes, he did trust me. And then other days there were definite things where you would say, okay, I want the thing on the thing on the thing. <laughs> you know, I want this particular mic that I just bought on the acoustic guitar and that's what we're going to do. And that's, that's part of the job. The job is to be both like it's almost i don't know if i want to c compare myself to that it's, it's a little bit like being a caddy you know like the, the caddy yeah. actually he gives he will take direction at all times but he will also give advice when needed or input let's say input right so it, it was a little bit of both if, if i want to say so but i mean at no point do I want to say that it was all my choice or anything like that. You know, that's not the point. Prince has a very strong idea of what he wants to record and how he wants to record it. And so you basically buckle up and go with that and try to make it all work, you know. But in, in between, he would ask, so what do you think of that? What do you think of that? And uh, that happens in some uh, in some places, happened a little bit more. And in some places, it happened a little less. And that's kind of the way this works. So just quickly, I want to go back a few minutes ago, you were talking about uh, Dreamer. That was the first session that you recorded or part of the first session. And all of a sudden, I'm imagining you've got, you know, Josh and Cora and Prince basically playing that song in front of you. You're hearing it, obviously, for the first time. What are your memories of that, of that moment or of that day? Um, it's an interesting part. I mean, if you know anything about recording, he didn't actually play the whole song, right? So he basically, mm. when we did that on the first day, that was literally the first day of recording, um, I heard the guitar parts, the drums and the bass, but I actually hadn't even heard the lyrics, you know, because he, I don't know if he rehearsed 
the band or if he just kind of gave him ideas this is kind of what it is because because it was my first day i was like uh, okay well these people are gonna play some music let's get that recorded right <laughs> uh, <laughs> so i actually don't have a memory of them saying oh yeah that song that we rehearsed for three hours whatever no it was kind of more, more spontaneous i mean i heard the guitar and i was like well this is kind of a little bit like you know voodoo child like a J- Jimi hendrix kind of thing like a very much it was very much not what I thought about Prince music, except for maybe Chaos and Disorder. Mm. Um, but I'm as, I was excited about it because I'm also a huge uh, Jimi Hendrix fan. So, so to me, it was kind of in that world. And then when later the when the when the words came on top of it, that's when I understood. Oh, this is like this is a really really special song, right? And so when you're behind the console, just generally speaking, would you start working on, I mean, that example might be a bit different, but would you generally start working on multi-tracks made available? Is that generally how it would work or? For the older tracks, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. yeah for the older tracks. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, there is a little bit of all of that. I mean, something like, for instance, no more candy for you. Yes. It's on MPL sound, not on Lotus flower. That was a song so we had just finished the other eight songs and I did them from scratch. And he gave me a call and he says, well, I need one more song. And I'm like, okay, cool. Uh, what do we need to do? And he's like, well, I'll, I'll let you know. I'll let you know. And then like, it went back and forth. He's like, oh, we're going to go to uh, Paisley Park tomorrow. Because some, uh, sorry, I've spent some, uh, a lot of time at Paisley Park too. It just started at, at LA, in LA. So this was in December now. He's like, oh, I have... We'll go, we're gonna go tomorrow, and flights were booked, and then it Ooh. gets cancelled, and then the next day uh, we're gonna go tomorrow, and then flights get booked. Like this, I remember this. This was like literally five days in a row. Tomorrow <laughs> we're going to Paisley Park, and then it got cancelled, and then finally he says we're not going because <laughs> <laughs> we found, I found the song, and so he found no more candy for you, and I don't even know where it came from. I have no idea when it was recorded. I don't know who it recorded it. It fits. But if you actually listen to it, you realize that that's quite a different song from the, from the rest of the album. I was actually, because I assumed you had done that one. And I, was, I had one little question in there. I thought, I'll just might put this in there depending on the mood. Because there's like a little mistake in that song that I swear it's a mistake. And I was going to ask you about it. I was like, did you make that mistake? Like, <laughs> but obviously not. <laughs> No, I won't. What kind of mistake is in there? I, I don't know. Oh, uh, just there's one part where it changes chord, and I swear the piano doesn't change chord. Like it stays on the wrong note just for like a split second. <laughs> I thought, I'm going to ask Richard about this. Um, it's just such a, I mean, it's kind of a little bit more of a rock song, and everything else is a funk song, a funk song. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. hey, I am not judging that. That is his vision, right? That's all good. Mm. Um, but know that this came from somewhere else. And if you ask me where it came from, I have no idea. He just said, this is the song. <laughs> so I put it together on, on the on the album there. But yeah. um, that just came like that. But in many other places, like, uh, okay, let's go with money, feel good, feel better, feel wonderful. Those were multi-tracks and I just finished them and record horns on it, et cetera. Yeah, well, that's kind of where it came from. So when you were in the studio and Prince was there, was there anything like, when you were actually engineering and Prince was there with you, is there anything that Prince did on the console and you saw that and you're like, oh, wow, I haven't thought of doing it like that. Like, did you learn anything from him in the studio, like the way that he worked? Um, yes. Let's put it like this. I, I watched him do things that I, um, that I knew about 
for instance, like very, very commonly known things about him is that he uh, used that he plugged in his guitar directly into the board and didn't really use an mm -hmm. amp. Uh, I think that goes back to at least controversy, like a very long time ago. Um, yeah. But that was cool to see these things. I'm like, oh, I heard about that. Oh, that's that. Well, then you see like, okay. Uh, the microphone over the over the console. That's also something he's been doing. And because I was a fan, I knew all these things, which probably helped me uh, shuffling everything around. Going like, oh, I think he probably wants that. I think he probably wants that. Um, often I was wrong, and he would tell me, no, that's not what I do anymore. That's cool, right? That's all good. How would I know, right? But you try to you try to be basically you try to stay on your toes and keep it going like that. But very often it was just like. You know, he's a man who's been making these records, his own records, for better or for worse, for this whole time. He has a specific sound. Not all of the sounds he does were great. And he would say that the first time. I think there was actually an article in the 90s that, where he said something like, oh, yeah, my, my music, you know, that's like great music, but like really terrible mixes. Uh, well. since I think he said that about his own work, you know. But then all of a sudden he would bring in the Lindrum, and it was not just some Lindrum, that's the Lindrum that uh, Wendell's Cry was made on, you know? So that, those were moments yeah. where I was like, damn, this is actually a historic instrument at this point. This particular one is. So, yeah. and, and there were things that he would do in, in ways where I said, well, that's, that's an odd way to do this, but it works and special, especially, uh, specifically works for him. Uh, for instance, he was, he was programming the drums and just running them. Like he was playing the drums like an instrument, even though he was programming the patterns. And uh, that's very different from what people do now. Now they basically program everything, then they edit it, then they make little whatever adjustments in their programming. But he would just program a pattern and then basically play it to tape. You know, so there were definitely those days where I was like, wow, this is a really cool way of doing this. In other ways, he would say, well, let's let's mic up some drums. And I would and we would record. And he's like, that sounds great. As in in some days he would say, well, you know, there's no secret here. Just do your work. Just record drums however you want to record drums. Yeah. You know, he didn't say anything about that. So it was uh, in that way. It was kind of cool. Oh, yeah. I'm just thinking, re reversing or flipping that question over. What, was there any time that you can think of where uh, maybe you surprised him in the studio with something? There were a couple of times. Yeah, <laughs> it was funny. I remember one time when he when we were at Sunset Sound and he we just had laid back a, a mix um, to the Pro Tools system. And he's like, well, you know, can you edit this and that, the other out, whatever? And I, and I turn around to him and says, it's already done. Because I, yeah. because I, I overheard him say it, etc. And he looked at me like, oh, so, oh, so you, you're with me here. It was, it was a cool moment, you know. It's not like that I impressed him or whatever. It's not the point, but like it, there was a cool moment of like, oh, we're doing this together, aren't we? That was good. And then, uh, what was later? Oh, well, actually, that's funny. That's, uh, so there were a couple of days when, so we started with these drum machines, like I just mentioned, like you would record them to tape. And then I said, you know, you could also just record a bar or two and we could duplicate these like in a digital way, you know. And uh, that was something that he wanted to experiment with all of a sudden. So there, there were things that were where our kind of uh, ideas, our creativity 
met, but it was always under his supervision, of course. Like, I, if, I, if at one point he was feeling like that's not what I want to do, then he most certainly let me know in no <laughs> in no un yeah. uh, uncertain terms, you know. And that's all good. That's the way this works. So again, just speaking about in in the studio, it sounds like it was a to and fro uh, between the two of you. At some point, you get comfortable enough, and and you know the work's just flowing. But did Prince and or you ever talk about how much gain do we apply? You know, how much headroom do we want to leave? Like really technical stuff, or was it a case of of you know I want this to sound like that, or I want this to sound you know not like that, but make it happen? Like how how technically involved? Were you guys, or was it? Was he relying mainly on your experience? Um, I, I would say the way to put that is, it. I ran the studio, as in I knew where everything came up and how it was being recorded. I ran the technology, basically, you know. But that doesn't mean that he didn't move a knob or something. Actually, at the very beginning, on the very first day, I said, "Well, here's these preamps that I think." will get you the sound that you're looking for because we were talking about why he was not happy about the sound that he was getting. Mm. Um, and so we, we had the drums and he's like, all of that sounds great. Um, I just needed a little louder or something like that. You know, I don't actually remember what he actually said. And then I said, well, you know, you could use these preamps. And I told him like, you know, you can just click these, they, they're stepped. And he kind of, the funny part was he clicked them all up one, which basically made everything just louder. <laughs> but it, it pleased him, you know. It pleased him. And so, so there was a hands-on, there was a kind of like, I want some idea of what's going on here as well. So I don't know if that answers your question, but yeah. And then, you know, you would have a have times when he would level uh, a mix himself, like his, his blends. Uh, there was a time, as you guys already know, he would record a lot of his own vocals and then he made uh, mixed blends of the background vocals, and we put them back into uh, other mediums, like from two-inch tape to Pro Tools, etc. Very standard things, hmm. but he certainly was hands-on on the console. He knew how to work it in his way. I, I, I never asked him if he felt fully in control of the of the board. I don't know. I don't know that, but uh, because that was my job, right? But yeah, uh, yeah. but it, I had a feeling that he he did. He he didn't know most of the things that made uh, a difference in his music maybe not every keep command or anything like that right but hmm. um but he could get get musically from a to b pretty sure of that okay and so aside from the technical side of things you spent you know pretty significant time working on lotus flower and mpls sound and you got to watch him and his associates as well work across i guess la but also paisley park what are some of your most vivid musical memories or or favorite moments during that period? <laughs> well, I can actually tell you. Uh, why don't I tell you the two most awesome moments? I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the first one was when we finished um, Chocolate Box. Uh, I don't know if you remember that song. It's on yes. yeah, yeah. So it didn't have Q-tip on that yet. That was recorded later. I mean, we record Chocolate Box with the Lindrum and live drums and all the instruments at Paisley Park. And then I remember the night that we did that because he was very fast. Like every song, we probably at least finished one song a night, but sometimes there were there was a night when we did three songs. I remember that. And we did Chocolate Box and it comes out of the speakers and it feels like it's done short of, you know, he might change the length or whatever, but the recording was done and the vocals were done, et cetera. And he played in and he was like a kid in the candy store, 
In the chocolate box store? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, but like he turned it up really loud. It was it was it was really great. And then he like stops the song and he's like he turns around. He's like, I gotta I gotta buy you a suit or something. <laughs> and then he get, he get he get on the phone with a manager with one of I don't actually know who he actually called. And he says, Get Richard a suit. What what size do you wear? <laughs> and I'm like, um, I am actually not quite sure because I don't really know my wear suits, nor do I know my size. So I don't know how I got out of that. In the end, uh, unfortunately, I don't have a suit. It never happened. But it was, uh, you know, it was one of those moments where you go, oh man, he's actually he's enjoying this. You know, he's 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 having he's having fun doing this. Is not just like oh, I wish we were done with this record or something. That was awesome. That was great. And the other one was actually in LA and we're overdubbing guitars and I think it was on money actually. And we sit in this in this house and he uh, I'm at the Pro Tools and I have it already and we have a sound up or whatever and he starts playing some guitars and uh, there's a uh, there's a television in the room and it's VH1 playing I think more or less by accident you know either I turn it on or he turned it on but whatever. So we're playing these guitars and all of a sudden, and I, this, I'm not making this up. It's just funny. So, like, VH1 starts playing a countdown of 50 greatest Prince videos. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty funny. So I'm what? sitting there, like, he's playing behind me, playing this part. And uh, um, I'm looking at these videos and thinking to myself, that's pretty surreal. And then he's like, stop. He says, stop the transport. I stop it. He takes the remote for the for the TV and he clicks it on and he like looks at himself. Uh, it was like when doves cry and then he, we were in that range of like, uh, uh, of kiss, etc. And, uh, he's just looking at it and it's like, Oh yeah, it was about when doves cry. He was saying, you know, that part when in the middle, when I'm, you know, when he's mirrored uh, in the, in the yeah, white yeah. place, you know, it's like, I wanted to do that. I, I was sure I was the first to do that. And then somebody pointed out to me that, I don't know, Led Zeppelin had done it before or something like that. I don't remember who did. Um, uh -huh. He like looks at, the th at himself a little bit more and like, mm -hmm. okay. And then he puts it back on mute and turns around and like, so where were we? And we continue recording the song. <laughs> 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 that is, that's, those were really, really cool moments where you go like, you know, not only are you making good music, but there's actually a, a, a person who's funny, human, and, uh, you know, uh, doesn't take himself all that serious at all times. I mean, as you know, there are days when he does, but he has the capability of, of doing this and looking at these things and himself and reflecting. And it was a, that, was, that was a cool moment. Just quickly, you mentioned about Chocolate Box and Q-Tip not being there. How did Q-Tip's rap, like, were you involved in that recording process or did Q-Tip record that separately and send it to you guys? So uh, Q-Tip was recorded in L.A. And here's the funny part. I had actually worked with Q-Tip in New York beforehand. So I actually knew him already. And uh -huh. funny actually with him, because when I worked on his album, this is 2003, he, we, he would take me back to the city because he was in New Jersey and he would get on the phone with whatever, uh, with Stevie Wonder or Prince and go to Nobu and have dinner, you know? So it's kind of funny. The connection was weird. Um, so all of a sudden Prince announced, well, Q-Tip comes to the house tonight. Can you record him? And, um, I'm like, yeah, sure. Of course. And so it's like a reunion for me. <laughs> and, uh, in the end, actually, the funny part is that I set him up, I got him a sound, whatever, but actually Q-Tip is also 
self-reliant on recording himself. So he basically, he knows how to use Pro Tools, et cetera, et cetera. So he actually is basically said, okay, I'm good now. I have sound. Everything sounds great. So let me do my thing. So then he, uh, he laid down, he laid down his parts on that, but that happened basically afterwards. Yeah. I got another question about uh, the chocolate box song. Cause there was a few different versions of that. There was like um, the album version. Then I think there was a bootleg circulating, which was basically like a, a shorter version of the, the album version, but it had no bass, didn't have that um, synth bass in it. Then there was another version on the Lotus Flower website, which was like, a I don't know, maybe like a 10-minute version. I think the it was disco called Disco Jellyfish. Jellyfish. Yeah. And it was just uh-huh. like the song. And then it just had like six minutes of just kind of Prince noodling on different sound effects on the keyboards and this sort of thing. Uh, was that something you, you were involved in or was that something that Prince just did on his own to make an extended version? No. I don't remember the one without the bass. I can't tell you about that one. I just don't really, I really don't remember that. Okay. But I do remember the Disco Jellyfish version. <laughs> I mean, they, they, he did a lot of that. I mean, as, as he did basically on every album, like the actual song, the way it was recorded was much, much longer. Uh, that, that happened a lot on the very first albums too. And um, for instance, I think, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think on, on uh, Soft and Wet, there's like versions that are really, really long and just yeah. was very short, you know? And, and it would be something like that where he said, well, for the re- website, I wanted to have this. Can you make me a file? So as long as I yeah. was uh, with him, uh, I did all these versions. If you say there's a bootleg without a bass, it could be I, I don't have a memory if it was at the time if it was done at the time and if it was um, if it was sanctioned in some ways because you know he would maybe sometimes uh, you know make it look like it's not a real version but it's actually his version too okay uh, with the Lotus Flower project it has this distinct rich warm oral feel about it and Minneapolis sound has more of a funk dance vibe about it so it's distinctly two different projects is that how Prince explained that to you those concepts or is it you're always recording all the time and then he just assigns them as two separate albums um good question I would I would say uh, there was not a day when he said like okay this one will be this and this one will be that um yep. we start with Lotus Flower and it, because of the instrumentation like the live instrumentation it just became very round and warm and big in that way and then at one point he said well here we're gonna do a f- uh, some sessions here at paisley park and I, i'm bringing you a fully different instrumentation which is the limit drum we had the drums but actually prince played the drums when like on on mpl sound i think there's not a single player except for prince i can't i'm, I'm, right. I'm trying to think now but i don't think so i mean there was vocalists maybe but were there I don't even remember now, um, but but I don't think anybody else played on that album than him. So that that already made it different. And then the other thing was then he used it was very much based on the Lin drum. So and it was be- very much the idea of the t- album's title would go into a specific place, both in time but also in sound ideas. And that's why it sounds different. Um, I'm not sure if there was ever like a real sit down. Hey, Richard, now we're gonna do this. That's totally different. We're just basically by the by the ingredients, it became something different. Right, gotcha. Just on that Lindrum, because he used it on the Minneapolis Sound album, and then also on the 2010 album a year later. Was that stuff programmed from the actual Lin machine, or did you guys like sample it onto a computer to then program it that way? I was programmed on the machine, like from the actual machine. Cool. Yeah. yeah. That's really cool. I know we've spoken about Chocolate Box a little bit, but I also remember there was either a press release or an early review that came out 
you know, just before the uh, the album was released, like a, an industry review possibly. And it was either someone making a comment or maybe Prince making a comment about the new recording techniques and methodologies that you guys were employing and that it was going to sound, the material, especially on MPLS sound, was going to sound, you know, dynamic and exciting and, and different to what people would expect. So with Chocolate Box, I remember listening to that on headphones and just kind of sitting there going, this is really like a kaleidoscope of sound. There's stuff entering the mix, coming out of the mix. There's like delays, there's effects circling around everywhere. Like it was a really vivid experience just sitting there. You didn't know what was, like things just felt like they were coming in and out constantly. It was incredible. Do you have mem- memories of that? Maybe not only Chocolate Box, but just MPLS sound. Were you guys doing anything differently from a recording or engineering perspective? I think I actually remember the um, the article that you said because there was uh, th- that you mentioned because I think I, s- I read someone something afterwards where they said, "Well, he was experimenting with Pro Tools, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. Mm. Me personally, I think we just started recording the way we interfaced in a way like uh, this is the way he does everything and he happens to want to do it in Pro Tools which is something that I'm exceptionally good at um, and so some things automatically just went differently like like uh, differently than on an analog recording for instance right but I don't think there was a specific path where he said where he said well I want this all to sound so different and this is why you know um, there were experiment, experiments that we did uh, I, I'm not sure if it was a real plan to make it different. Here's, this, here's the thing that I wanted to stress, though. He might have had that plan. He might have not communicated that directly to me. You know what I mean? Like maybe he did things differently and I didn't know because this is the first time I'm recording with him. So I maybe there were some things that he did very differently than normally, but to me were just the things how he records. I can't mm-hmm. tell you, but, and I didn't ask in a specific way. So they are, that's, it's possible. Um, but yeah, he wanted to record it on Pro Tools mostly, which was to me not a surprise. Sorry, it was a surprise, but it's nothing special to me because most records around that time were made in Pro Tools, you know, but just not maybe his. <laughs> um, so it, it could be a little bit of all of that combination, but there was not a day when he said, okay, we're going to make this crazy sounding album and here are the techniques to do it. That didn't quite happen that way. Okay. Let me say one thing though. I'm actually super excited that that's the, that's what you took away from it when you heard that, because, um, you know, like very often I'm in the studio with any artist for that matter. And, um, and I wonder what, what all these details or all these things that I, that are basically for me are common, right? How do they actually affect the listener? Like does a delisten- hmm. does a, does a listener actually know what a delay is? Most of them don't. But what when they take off the headphone and go like, "That was awesome." I don't know why, but that was awesome. You know, like so basically the way <laughs> you described it is a way that I don't listen to music that way. I would have never described it that way, even if it's accurate. You know, so it's it's great how different people react to music and describe it and see what just happened, and that's that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. So so thanks for sharing that. Like one thing we always said about a lot of Prince's music is just listening to it on speakers or on your phone. That is a totally different experience to getting, you know, good, some good headphones and blasting it because there's so many more details that you can hear. 
which you, you know, you're not going to hear that just listening on your phone, but you get a good pair of headphones and you listen to some songs and there's just so much in there that you don't always hear. So yeah, that's good. Yeah. And it's also something, how do we pay attention, right? Unfortunately, music is so such a secondhand kind of background activity very often that mm. um, that you might be on social media, you might actually be watching a television program while a song is playing. So it actually, uh, that moment of actually putting on headphones and just saying, I'm not doing anything. I'm basically sitting on my butt and listening to yeah. this song and see what it does to me. I feel that seldom. I mean, I cannot speak for a 14-year-old today. I don't know. But uh, I, I wish, I hope that they do. And then even if they have just a crappy uh, iPhone Headphones, you know, if you're actually listening and not doing anything else while you listening to mm. the music, maybe it's not exactly what I heard, but you will hear a lot. I mean, it's, I personally hate the white earbuds. I, I really think they're terrible. Yeah. Okay, but on an audio point of view, a lot of what's in the record you can actually hear on them. You know, uh, so uh, I don't know. It, it depends on the people. Um, if you have the time to concentrate on the music, I think you get a lot more out of it than, you know, have it play out of your phone while you're in the shower. Yeah, completely agree. And you'll be happy to know that yesterday I was spinning my vinyl copy of Lotus Flower, uh, both on headphones and on near-field near <laughs> monitors. So that was that was a different thing. You know, I couldn't get up because I have to switch the side and all that sort of stuff as well. And, it, you know, I was sitting there really immersed in the music rather than using it as background, right? So that was uh, that was cool. And it sounds great on vinyl, by the way. Oh, it does, okay. Well, I have a, I have a copy of the vinyl, and uh, but I don't know how it was made uh, because it happened uh, like a year later after I, uh, after I left. Okay. Actually, um, I was just saying like I'm, I'm actually uh, wondering how it happened. <laughs> <laughs> like who, who made the call, how they get the files, where does it come from, all these things on a technical level, you know, like did they just rip the CD and print it to a to a vinyl? Which I bet you that's what they did. <laughs> you know, you know, I, yeah, I literally I, probably I'm, what they did. I have no information. <laughs> I never asked. I bought one at one point. I was like, I have one, so, uh, but I actually have not played it. I should play it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because I have I have it on uh, on CDs and whatever. I I heard it. Yeah. So the whole project, Lotus Flower, Minneapolis Sound. How long? Did the whole thing take, like, from the first day you started till you walked out of there? Um, I would I would give it two time ranges. One was kind of from August to January, February, January maybe, end of January, uh, 2000, so August 2008 to January 2009-ish. But then, you know, there were, like, things afterwards, like small changes, uh, getting the versions together for different um, releases, like, you know, for instance, the online whatever, or for the website one, make it shorter. Then there was that there was that website that had, like, only there will be another, uh, there will never be another like me, only on, mm. like, a, there was, like, a pink background and just a little, little leak. I mean, it was something that he did, you know. Um I remember that. I, I was convinced that that was a fake. I was like, no, because nope. it didn't have Prince's vocal. It was just the instrumental. <laughs> and I remember, I yeah. remember typing this massive thing on a forum saying, no, this is a fake song. This isn't Prince. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. You know, it was real. It was real. So all of these things together took about a year, I would say. Just a quick, uh, quick question from me. When you said recording live rehearsals, you uh -huh. wouldn't have been around for the rehearsals that they were doing before the um, Montreux Jazz Festival shows of that year, were you? 
Uh, do you mean the one? No, no. Just okay. I left pretty much right before that. I, I left about. Okay. I, I left pretty much right after the um, the release of Lotus Flower. So like this must have. I would say April. I can tell you exactly when I basically was done. Was um, the Ellen show was the last time. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, I think that's right. So that that must have been the end of March sometime. Yeah, because on that show I did. I ran the Pro Tools system that made the voice sound like. Uh, like a tremolo uh, so mm. that he who would like ah. so I, he, he asked me like can we do that same effect that we had on the record so we did that and that, but that was basically the last time uh, i was in a capacity because the the whole thing was too and the album was now done you know there was no particular reason to not go on to other projects I guess one of the thing, the other things I was wondering about was, you know, you being a big fan as well as working with him, you have a completely different perspective to someone who was just a fan or just an engineer, for example, who worked with him. So you have this combination of both. And the thing I'm wondering about is we know it, on this show, we speak about it often, you know, in the 80s and the 80s and the early 90s were seen as, you know, Prince producing so much classic material that, you know, was selling really well. It's struck a chord with the culture, with audiences. And then he kind of started getting a little bit more mixed reviews of his work until around 2004, when he had the big quote unquote commercial comeback right up until Lotus Flower, which I think has ended up being seen as a classic Prince album by many these days. Even then it started getting a lot of great reviews, but these days it's seen as a super release, like a really solid release in his discography. In saying all that, from your perspective, when you were working on it, when you first heard it and then when you finished the final product, what was your response to the material and and what ended up coming out as a fan, I guess, more than as as an engineer? Mm. Well, I mean, first of all, thank you for saying that people like Lotus Flower, you know, because I mean, yeah, it's I mean, great. Yeah, you know, like you never know, you never really know. Like, so, so it's, it's an interesting point to see what the fan actually uh, thinks is a good album or not. And it actually, in a way, has nothing to do with how you look at the music, like not how Prince looks at the music, not how I look at the music. Like sometimes people just like something much better than than other times, you know. So mm-hmm. that's it's, it's great to hear that actually people like it I, I dig that you know I, I i didn't go on the boards right after release and go like well so what do the fans think now <laughs> i was happy that it sold what six hundred thousand copies through target alone which yeah. was never available on the itunes store at the time so all that being said like i can tell you that when we were making mpl sound and when the when the lindrum came out for the first time i was like oh my lord i'm i'm about to make you know a Prince album, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like when when we did Lotus Flower, it felt to me like, oh, we're making a Jimi Hendrix album, something yeah. like that, you know? <laughs> which I also think is fantastic. Uh, well, actually, in because I'm a fan, because I know Chaos and Disorder, I'm like, will this be another rock album like Chaos and Disorder? Which it is not, you know. Uh, I mean, a couple of songs, Boom and Dreamer, but not really the rest. So. I was excited about that. I was like, oh, I can't believe these are the sounds. This is the guitar. This is the drum set, et cetera. Like this is exactly what he would have used at the time, you know? So in in that vein, I was just like super happy about the way this this came along. And when it came out, I mean, if you ask me, definitely the MPL sound is one of my highlights in my my career, you know, because I actually 
I, I like the way that came together. I love old school company. I love this funny, like we recorded, there will never be another like me. And to me, that's like, because I think that was the first one we recorded for MPL Sound, which would make sense because that was the one he leaked through that website, uh, fake mm. website. To me, that reminded me of like uh, of the beginning of Diamonds and Pearls, the, so the song Thunder, which is very different yeah. than the rest of the album. It's like program. <laughs> and it, it was just, uh, that was just an exciting time. But he had the, as, as, a, as an engineer, et cetera, I'm thinking at the same time that it's not my job to judge the music at all. You know, my job is to make it sound the most to the liking of my client, i.e. Prince, that I can muster, you know. And I'm not saying that means the best sound. It means the sound that he's going for. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm trying to find it and trying to translate the vision because like a cameraman, that's kind of what the director wants a specific thing and the cameraman tries to figure out, well, what does he want? And that's what we're doing, you know. Um, mm. so, so I never, I really never judged the music before or after. I just uh, I finish it. I hope it does well. It, I hope I hope it does for the creator what it what it should do. That that might be a financial reward, or it might be just an artistic reward, or it might be just some reward that only the creator puts their fingers on that I will never know. Like I remember one day, this was awesome. Uh, he calls me, and we're we're in uh, Chan Hassan. And he calls me and says, I'm at the hotel. And he's like, do you want to hear the good news or the bad news first? <laughs> like, hmm. well, let's start with the good news. And he's like, everything sounds great. And I'm like, I don't even want to hear anything else. Now. <laughs> 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 you know, that's good. Like, I, that's all I wanted, you know? Yeah, like, I'm done. <laughs> like, you, you have what you want? Awesome. I mean, I didn't say that, you know, of course I didn't. But that, that was a good day. Uh, and then uh, the bad news was that he needed to change some edits. It was not even that bad. But like, you know, he as my client was a happy client. So that, that was the moment where I said, okay, well, we're still here. Because here's the thing. We all know the, the stories, even without your podcast, we would, would know all the stories from before. When I first got the gig, which was already crazy, but when I actually got it and walked in in there, I was like, I was fully prepared that after 48 hours, I would just get fired. Not, <laughs> not, because, not because I can't handle it, because I know I can, but because, you know, we all know the stories. Some, some crazy thing will happen, and that was it. And then you just mm. be like, that was weird. Okay, and then you go home. But instead, I worked with him for a year. So somehow we found a pace. We found something that he wanted to create, and he... Uh, uh, luckily invited me along, you know, for that I am thankful. And that's how I see those albums. Like to me, it's the uh, relationship between him and me, what we did. And that's why that, uh, maybe that's why that eternal thanks credit was important to me, you know, because I was like, what am mm. I, what's my plan in this all? all? My plan is mm. here to walk away at a time when the album is finished. Hopefully it's released because, you know, it could have been shelved too. Yeah, <laughs> I actually got really, really lucky because we worked only for a year and all of our work got released when some people, I, I could have st been stuck there for like three, four years and nothing came out of it. And we're like, he changes his mind and uh, vault it is and nobody will ever hear what we ever did. You know, that, that could have been a total possibility. It wouldn't have been even offensive mm. or anything that would have been just you know it's not right for the artist yet or it's not the right time to release it and i get that but i got lucky because we got actually a release and one that was successful 
Um, yeah. So that's the plan. That's that's the thing that I think about that time. That's how I judge the music. Like we did what we wanted to do. We finished it. My client was happy and we had a decently a successful record. Actually, Keith Urban and was the only one who beat us. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I've got a beautiful vinyl copy sitting right in front of me, so I'm I'm forever grateful as well. Well, um, I don't know about these other guys, but when we first reviewed Lotus Flower and MPLS Sound, I'm sure that I said, and I still think, that it's one of Prince's best albums in that 2000s decade. Yeah, Except yes. maybe it's maybe tied with Rainbow Children because it's just got a really live, organic sound to it. But yeah, it's one of the best albums in that whole decade. So I was going to say, in the fan community, it's like that whole era is Rainbow Children, 31, 21, and Lotus Flower, MPLS Sound. You know, they, they are the high, they receive that high praise constantly, not just when they came out, but still those three records seem to be you know, universally loved. So it's pretty cool. That's awesome. I, I did not know that. I mean, to me, like if I looked at that time, I was always smitten with uh, Musicology and 3121. I thought they were really cool things in both of them. And I thought actually Musicology sounded great too. Um, and that song is actually just one of the, that one in Black Sweat, which is, that's on 3121. Those are like, to me, both are classic Prince songs at this point. And uh, Dreamer, to me, Dreamer should be the song uh, to me, that's the most important song on those albums. You know, the coolest song is probably "Old School Company," I think. But uh, and "Money," actually, I like "Money." Uh, but "Dreamer" is the one that I thought encapsulates the idea of Lotus Flower. And was it "Dreamer" that got nominated for? Uh, was it a Grammy? Yeah, it was best. Uh, I guess best rock vocal performance. I think that's yeah. What, yeah, and then Bruce Springsteen took it. Um, uh. Yeah. Yeah, that's okay. That's that's the way this works. <laughs> it's an honor just to be nominated. <laughs> it's an honor. It's 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 great. It's great. Um, in recent times, the estate have re-released Musicology, Planet Earth, thirty-one twenty-one, and I believe they're going to release the Rave album. Have you heard any word of them doing a, a legacy estate vinyl release of Lotus Flower and Minneapolis Sound, or you haven't heard anything about that yet? Uh, I have not heard anything about that. Uh, I, the only thing I know is about the Anthology album that came out last year in August, right? Oh, Anthology. Yeah. 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 So that had actually, it had Dreamer and Old School Company, right? Yeah, yeah. I think it had two tracks. So, yeah. so whoever whoever curated that actually chose wisely. <laughs> I, I like that. No, I, I, I don't know. I wish I could tell you. Mm. I wonder, I, I was going to ask you what you were thinking of what it was going to be like when you went in to work for him versus reflecting on it now. And I'm happy for you to answer that. But I guess I'm also interested in your thoughts as a musician, because earlier on, you told us about your classically, you know, you're a classically trained piano player and you started playing jazz piano and all this sort of stuff. So did you ever witness Prince as a musician surprising you or impressing you in any way, maybe even on the keys? Every day. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, here's the thing, like everybody says he's a musical genius and that is, it's just simply true. You know, we spent weeks at uh, Paisley Park and it was just him and me. And there was one guy who was taking care of Paisley Park, but um, it was just him and me in the studio and he would just play all the instruments. That's how MPLS sound came together. And so the thing that always impressed me most was this, was this thought of, he never tried for a performance. It was almost like, okay, so we're now playing keys. And then we play keys for a take. Okay, we're done with that. Now we play guitar. And then we play guitar for a take. 
and it would just never be like, oh, let me try that again, or it would never be like, um, I wonder what the part would be. He would just play it and then move on to something else. And that's why we were so fast, or he he was so fast for that matter. I just was fast in following along. <laughs> um, so that alone, not every musician's moment has to be virtuoso. It would be amazing. If it's so specific and so deliberate and so so thought out and performed well that that to me is almost more impressive than somebody for instance noodling crazy stuff <laughs> really crazy virtuoso stuff hmm. you know but he was just so solid at it it was it, that was the part where i'm like how do you do that i mean i didn't actually ask him that <laughs> maybe i should have but i didn't <laughs> so uh, no that yeah those were the moments where i thought that was the most impressive but well, when we talked to Morris Hayes, I think it was about a year ago, he said, you know, because he was with Prince for a, a long time. Yeah. And Prince writes a song, you know, the whole song is in his head. His job then is just to get it out of his head and get yeah. it onto tape. So all the parts are already in there. Like he just turns up and he knows all the parts that he's got to play and he just goes one by one by one and gets it out of his brain. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, it's just crazy that it's, that's the way it worked. That's exactly what I w- witnessed. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, unbelievable. And and again, you've been in the in the game and still are in the game. You know, you've, you've had such a long career. I guess going back to the first part of my question, when you went into the project, even though it happened so organically and spontaneously, yeah, I mean, I don't know. You may not have had enough time to really think about what it would be like. But did you go in having a preconceived notion and come out having a different one? Like, I just wonder, reflecting on that whole period now, uh, as an engineer and as a mixer. Um, no, it was more like I, I went in going like, okay, this is probably going to be the hardest gig ever. Just just from a demand point of view, you know, yeah. this was just something I had in my head. I'm not saying there was any indication on that, but just I'm like, because we all heard the stories, all the stories yeah. that you're collecting uh, together make it sound like, well, it's probably going to be a hard thing and I'm going to probably have to be on my toes all day long. Then again, that's really also my the description of my job for any person really you know for any uh for any client i'm trying to follow along as best as i can and be a vessel for their creative outlet so in many ways that became true it was it was a hard job it was a very demanding situation and in many ways it was just oh wow so now he wants to buy me a suit (laughs) (laughs) that's what i'm trying to say like no it was I, i expected hard and strange and i got hard and strange in very different ways <laughs> that's yeah. kind of the answer to you could that. say it was beautiful strange maybe there we go um i was just going to say that you've worked in many studios in many locations and i was just wondering how you rate paisley park as a facility compared to other studios um interesting it was uh, paisley park is a very well thought out studio and actually it has like five five studios in it or so Yep. And it was uh, designed very deliberately. I believe it was designed on on the idea of a Westlake studio, which is the one that's in LA that actually that uh, they recorded Thriller at. Ah. So, but actually, I'm not sure actually if uh, Prince himself worked at Westlake. He normally was associated with Sunset Sound. Sunset. Yeah. Yeah, but um, but it was. I think it was designed by the same people. I, I could be wrong, right? Um, sorry, uh, Westlake and Paisley, not Sunset Sound. So in that way, it was fully compatible and fully up to date for everything, you know. Right. So, and all of a sudden, the person who runs the sessions, i.e., me in this case, 
it would be the one who would go like, okay, well, let's look at the studio and see if everything is in good shape. And he actually sent me out there a couple of times, uh, first at the beginning, and he's like, just just check out if everything is uh, in working order. And I, so I went there, I tested everything, I wrote down kind of some reports of this needs to work out, this is great, this is fantastic, and this other thing needs to be worked out, and then basically make um, recommendations on that. And later we hired a couple of people to come out and maintain it, you know, but in general, everything was there and uh, sounded great. You know, you just had to make sure it stayed that way, but it's, uh, yep. it's fully featured. Yeah. When you were working at Paisley and when you were working at the LA place in his house, when Prince was in the studio, did he seem more comfortable when he was at Paisley since he knew that studio, like the back of his hand compared to the one in LA? That's a good question. Um, I'm not sure if I know how to answer that. Basically, we did in LA also record sometimes at Sunset Sound, which basically was where he did a lot of his music prior. So you basically had like this home away from home. But he seemed to enjoy yeah. both. You know, there, there was one day when I, I remember he said something like, when we were at Paisley, he's like, oh, he, this is, um, we're home now or something like that, you know. But, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, it didn't seem to affect him on a daily basis. You know, uh, not that I could tell. He he seemed to be fine either either place. Oh, okay. Uh, Richard, I recall once, I think in an interview that you did, it might be on YouTube, you said that your mission early in your career was to, you know, go to America, go to the USA, basically work in the coolest studios and work on the coolest music you could find. So my question to you has to be, so far, what's the coolest studio you've worked in? And secondly, what's the coolest music you've worked on? Uh, that's a lotus question. Lotus, a lotus question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A, lotus, a, lotus question. a loaded lotus question. Podcast, right? No, that's, that's right. Part. I mean, it's probably like this. The coolest studio was probably Paisley Park just because of what uh, – what came with it, as in the, hmm. the Paisley Park is basically the Abbey Road of funk, <laughs> you know, like that. It is. It's a, it's kind of a holy halls. And I, when I first got there, I, re, I remember calling a friend and, and told told him like, you wouldn't believe where I am right now. <laughs> 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 and it, it was cold there too. But uh, so, so for that fact, it's probably the Paisley Park is probably the coolest. Um, I don't know if it is the coolest music that I ever made. I mean, yeah, that, I know that fun, wasn't fair, I, a fair question. I, 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 it's funny. I say this often too, like because we have so much music that is independent or basically not uh, released in a in a major way. There are songs that come onto my desk right now, for instance, that that I know nobody will ever hear, or at least not many people, right? But where I just listen to the stuff and think wow, this is like the best song I've gotten in, in years, you know? Like just last year, actually, I got a song by a band called Willow Dean and like it made me cry. And I was like, damn, like <laughs> this song is just, where did you guys come from? It's amazing, you know? And um, you just don't know. And that's maybe the beauty of, beauty of music because uh, that can come from anywhere. And that's why actually why I try to work on all kinds of levels of music because if you just shoot for the major labels, whatever, then you're going to get just that. It's not it's not good or bad. I'm not saying major label music is bad. Not at all. I think that's really great stuff. I'm just saying that the music, by definition, can come from very unexpected places. And actually, even Prince would probably, you know, he, he was independent. He says, like, I want to make the music I want to make. Um, and he did, of course. Um and that's basically like a better outlet for the music than just being signed to uh, specific outlets that will maybe 
influence mm-hmm. how you make your music, you know? So, so I can't say that I'm the coolest music I've ever been. <laughs> how about this? How about we say that? Yes. The music I did uh, with Prince was definitely amongst the coolest I've ever done, but there were others too, because outcast and my back background, oh, yeah. Jay Z and stuff. Are, that's that stuff that meant a lot to me at the same time. And then there were single tracks, like for instance, there's a there's a song by Tyrese called Shame, which is one of the best songs I recorded. I think you know, I, I just I just like the honesty of that track. Uh, so it's here and there. I, I can't say, and maybe mm. that's the beauty. That's actually also okay. So I mean, going all the way back to the beginning, one of the reasons why I'm in the why I'm an a recording engineer and why I started at that place in New York was that I wanted to be in uh, involved in many different kinds of music so that I can do um, a jazz quartet, a jingle, an R&B song, a hip hop song, a rock band, whatever. Uh, while as a player, I might be more pigeonholed into one thing, you know. So, yeah. so basically in that way, I would say the, the music I've been working on over the last 20 years, there were some amazing tracks some uh some weird tracks some terrible tracks some great artists some not so great artists and that together makes a career right mm, yeah that's that's the journey right that is yeah uh, you mentioned Tyrese so I'll just pick up on that quickly because it looks like from what I've seen online that you've gone from being a recording engineer mixer with with him to becoming like a deeper collaborator in some sense. And one of the things that I found really interesting in a conversation that you guys uh, had with someone online was uh, I learned that when you worked with him, he would record his vocals like without the rest of the music necessarily in the background. So basically he's just recording with a click track playing in his ears sometimes. And basically that means, you know, recording line after line until you perfect it over many takes and again, we, we are obviously a Prince podcast. What I was wondering about is how was this similar or different compared to vocal tracking with Prince? So in other words, vocal tracking with Prince on MPLS Sound, for example, versus vocal tracking with Tyrese. <laughs> You're very well informed. Yeah, what you watched was the, what was called Pensado's Place, which is a... Which is, which is a show for engineers and producers. Um, yeah. yeah, that's funny. Uh, no, nobody does it quite like Therese, and um, that is a very special kind of way of recording. I mean, he, he's, I mean, the, the truth is, on Prince's side, he recorded a lot of his vocals himself. I probably only recorded his actual vocals, I don't know, five or six times, because he basically would say, okay, here's the instrumental, we're done. You know, allow, give me an hour or two, and I'll record my vocals himself, because that's... That's no news. He did that since the 80s, right? And then basically he says, well, I think I'm done here. I made some blends and uh, can you now put it together with the rest of the song on a technical basis because we used multiple um, medium, a playback medium at the time. Yeah, so that was definitely not like that. And, and what I do with Tyrese for this particular vocal recording is something I do with nobody else either. It is, it's something, it's a technique, if I want to say it like that, it's not like the best way to record anybody or whatever. It's just, it's the best way to record Tyrese. That's yeah. his way of doing things. But it's not like I would go to a studio now and go with another singer and say, well, I have this great idea. Let's do this. That w- I would probably not do that. You know? Cool. I read 
you like you've worked with Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. Yeah. What projects have you done with them? It sounds like you've worked with them a fair bit. Um, a bunch of projects. Like uh, we worked on Shaka Khan, Ruben Stoddard, Patty LaBelle, the Isley Brothers, some Usher stuff, uh, the new edition nice. movies that we did, uh, a few things here and there, single ones, uh, single, single projects, you know. And the funny part, I always tell the story often. I mean, it's not a real story, but basically, obviously, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis are very close to Prince, but I met them before I met Prince, and I met Prince totally disconnected from Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. Uh, like the, yeah. the, there was no connection, which the funniest part was that Terry was visiting Prince here in town at one point, and uh, basically... He walked into the house here in LA, and uh, Prince <laughs> Prince was like, "Oh, this is Terry," and I'm like, "Yeah, no, we're friends." <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was a kind of a cool moment where it's like, "Yeah, I know your friends. We both have cool friends." <laughs> <laughs> I know, but uh, uh, no, Terry and Jimmy are—they're—they're like, they're amazing. They're gentlemen. They're—they're they're, uh, friends yeah. with Prince for the whole time. Uh, and you know they they go way way back. You know, so speaking of uh, meeting people, you uh, very early on you mentioned Herbie Hancock. Is that a? Yeah. Is, have you got a bit of a Herbie Hancock story? Oh, just a little bit. I think this is after the Grammys in February of two thousand nine. Prince had a house party and he invited people over because he was always playing people uh, in the basement uh, at his mansion here. And uh, Whitney Houston was there and Herbie Hancock was there. <laughs> no, I remember this too. And then, you know. <laughs> um, oh, this will be good. This will be good. I can hear it. Um, Vinnie Chase and E from Entourage were there. Uh, right. And that was all fun and games. And they were playing, they were playing. And then the funniest thing happened. Paris Hilton walked in. <laughs> I will always remember that. This is so funny. So Paris Hilton walked <laughs> Walked in, he goes and like stands in front of the band, more or less. You know, like I mean, it was there was no stage, it was just set up in a big room, and you know, started dancing or whatever Paris Hilton does. I didn't actually see this part, um, but <laughs> Prince actually said on the mic, he said, Oh, Paris Hilton has arrived. Time to go home now. <laughs> basically, he disappeared at the party soon after it got <laughs> shut down. Oh, that's hilarious. It's funny because it's, funny because it's true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, glad glad you, you remembered that. Uh, I've got to ask you one last thing from my end and then uh, I'm, I'm done. But uh, I don't know where I got this from or, or where it's from. I just, I'm just going to put it out there and you let me know what it means, if it makes any sense to you. Richard, if I said to you, record the horns in mono, baby... What does that mean? How do you know that? <laughs> oh, 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 oh. We, we, have, we have good friends. We do our research. <laughs> We're a serious podcast, Richard. That's a little scary. Um, so what happened was, so this is probably on the song Money and um, probably uh, a couple more. This was more than one song in one session. I don't know. But basically he asked us to go down to Sunset Sound and record the horn section. And it was... Uh, Macia Parker, and then the the rest of the touring horn section. I, I don't know all the names, but there are four people. That's a normal horn, horn section. And um, 
the, so we sit there and he basically says, sorry, Prince is not there yet. Uh, he says, can you get started recording these guys? And I'm like, yeah. So I set up this thing that, you know, engineers do this. We set up a stereo room mic and we put one mic on every horn and we blend it together. And it's going to sound like a pretty cool, um, pretty cool widespread. And it's awesome. It, it sounds great. I mean, they, you know, uh, it does. So uh, I'm recording the stuff. And uh, I'm already started. I already started because he said I should just get started. And at one point he comes in and he listens to a little bit of it and he's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I didn't quite understand the question. <laughs> like, what's what, you what are you doing? <laughs> recording, <laughs> recording the horns. I mean, what, what what's the answer to that question? Don't know. Right. And he's like, uh, you know, uh, I just need a recorded mono. I'm like, what? Because, I mean, there was actually no reason for it except for maybe, I mean, sorry, creatively, there could be a reason for it. But there was not a reason like we don't have enough tracks or anything like that, right? I can just do it mm. the way I wanted to do it. Um, and, and actually, even I could even record it the way I wanted it. And at the end... You can mix it to mono. Yeah, yeah. it doesn't actually matter. But he says, well, but I want to record it in mono. I'm like, okay. So that's one of those days when you go like, okay, so he wants this. So you'll figure out how to do that, right? Mm. Even though that was not my plan first. So I put it all into mono. And now the funny part is this. Or I think it's the funny part. So we keep going. He's he's actually now happy. And, and he actually had to uh, leave for some reason because I know then he was not there anymore. I don't know, but he was not there anymore. But um, so we keep recording. And all of a sudden, Maceo says, I can't hear myself. And I'm like, well, here's the problem. This sounds great. The the blend in mono sounds great, right? Um, but you can't hear yourself, which means basically tough luck, because <laughs> I can't turn you up. Because now I'm changing the le- <laughs> the blend that sounds great, right? <laughs> so so basically, we all had to learn a little bit. And it, there was a funny part too, because we recorded on two inch tape, and everybody got so used to recording on computers these days that they basically say, "Well, let's just fly the chorus to the next chorus." which means you just copy it there, right? And I'm yeah. like, uh, you're forgetting that you have to play it for the whole song. <laughs> so it's funny. It's like the whole technology that moves forward doesn't just affect artists or, or even engineers, but musicians get used to it too. So we all got into like, okay, A, we just got to listen better with a one headphone off so we can hear our own horn better, you know, but the blend has to be right. This blend is permanent. It goes to mono straight away. And uh, and when we're done, we're done. We, we you play it for for the whole song, and then we don't ever have to touch it again. So you know, that's the advantage of it. It's it's actually faster if you can do it. Then those choices are made, and you can make a fa- record faster. Um, but yeah, that was that. So now tell that's me how you know that. Super interesting. I ha- I. I- <laughs> the funny thing is, when we were doing, we always do as much research as possible before the show, like when we yeah. speak to Morris or whatever, and and it's it came up somewhere. I I, I honestly don't know where, but <laughs> it must have come up somewhere. We either read it or heard it. I guess you read it about me saying that or somebody else saying it. I I can't remember for the life of me. It might have been an interview with Maceo. I can't remember. Yeah, it I could have remember. been an. It could have been an. Yeah, I can't remember now. Okay, but uh, we I mean, we take our homework seriously, so yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, no, that's that's a pretty detailed thing to remember. It's something that could theoretically. Uh, he's he's like this. Let's put it like this: if if there were ten engineers 
and all of them were asked to record this horn section, they would all have done it like I did it. So theoretically, yeah. every single one would have been told, well, I wanted mono. <laughs> yeah. So it could yeah, yeah. be that somebody else said the same thing. Or you... That's possible, yeah. But, uh, but it's not a secret. I mean, I've probably said this thing before, too. So you could have also read it about me. I'm just wondering, it's a, I'm just more intrigued about the fact that if you read it about me, you did really good research. If you read it about other people, then I'm wondering how many times that happened in the past. Yeah. <laughs> there's nothing, there's nothing, there's no secret there. I don't think that's what it is. Oh, cool. Well, because I'm just thinking about it now. I mean, not just recording horns in mono, but I know like when you listen to the old Phil Spector wall of sound stuff, you know, in mono, and then maybe even on, on just one speaker from like a, a smart speaker or something is it sounds super, like it's really pierces through everything else. So maybe that, I don't know. But you're right. I mean, you could just adjust it at any time, right? So that's weird. I, I could. I mean, I couldn't. I can't go the other way. But I could have hmm. poured yeah. it a, a bigger and then flip it down, and nothing would have happened. Everything would have been great. In the end, I remember <laughs> we did it in mono, but we doubled it. Uh, so we played. It was stereo two times mono. I, I think I would have to double check this, but I think it's in money. And so then we panned one thing a little bit to the left, one little bit to the right. I don't know. I, I remember the session more than I remember the outcome. <laughs> yeah. Well, we remember the outcome, Richard, and it sounds good. So that, <laughs> that's the most important thing. It was just an, uh, it was just funny because obviously, basically, the request that the artist had for me made me look a little bad in front of Maceo Parker, which I didn't really appreciate either. <laughs> like, no, sir, you got to suck that up, Maceo. <laughs> yeah. You tell you tell him. <laughs> because I, there's nothing I can do. It's not the kind of, kind of thing you want to tell anybody, but that's just yeah. what happened. Especially I mean, Maceo. played along. I'm not saying it was a tense moment or anything. No. We all were like, oh, oh all right. Okay. So that's oh, what cool. professionals do. Yep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So just going back to what you said just before about when Paris Hilton came out and Prince made that comment, like one of the things that we all know about Prince is his sense of humor is just something else. Like what are your memories of that, of like Prince being funny and just the things that he says and the expressions that he got in his face, things like that. Have you got any memories of that? I mean, you know, when you, when you, I always thought those moments were like, you know, get Richard a suit that was pretty those are the funnier moments where he like where yeah. he felt like where he felt like the man basically lives by where I said like like the, the situation is now so lighthearted that he can that he can feel free to be funny you know I mean there was another time that was funny uh the, the whole uh, whole band was at Paisley um and that's like Shelby J now John Blackwell uh yeah and um, all of a sudden, he's like, let's go to, a, I got to show you something <laughs> on my computer screen. And then he shows us this thing of a guy. This is amazing. This, like, this was just a video of a guy who ran backstage at a concert. Not his concert, not Prince's concert, any concert. Right? I don't even know what it was. And basically just like stormed the stage from the back and just and just pushed the lead singer into the mosh pit. But from the, <laughs> but, but, but from the back, like the, the guy never saw it coming. Uh, <laughs> and Prince thought it was super, super funny. And I'm like, in my head, I'm like, unless that somebody would do that to you. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but he, well, he cackled about it. He was like, was, that was awesome. But yeah, so no, he, he, he had those moments and he was very jovial when, when in a social setting, you know, like when, when there are multiple people around, it could be the funniest person ever. And then, you know, funny, 
to me too but then they were also serious moments of like let's just get stuff done you know because that's what we're here for yeah. so i don't know there's there's that there's that uh that thought that he had a very specific humor and it's definitely very specific but there were moments of it and like any other place there were some moments where that was not there you know but mm. remember with those so i said the paris hilton story then there's another story later i was already not there anymore when he basically didn't he like tell uh kim oh Kanaf yeah get off the stage or something like that That's basically the same thing you know basically the same thing yeah he got her up on stage during a song at the concert to dance and she didn't dance she just sort of stood there and he's like yeah. well, come on dance like 20 seconds later she's still not dancing so he's just like get off the stage <laughs> yeah i think i saw i saw the video but it's very the video is very nondescript like you, you can't actually yeah. quite make out what's going on if you didn't come to dance what are you doing here yeah that made a big thing in the media for some reason but it was just his sense of humor yeah and it's it's fun i mean i don't think he even means anything mean by it he's just like yeah. this is me this is my place this is not your place so I'm just you know whatever mm. the least you could do is dance but anyway <laughs> <laughs> Well, Richard, would you believe it? We actually covered everything we wanted to um, to touch on, I think, or most things anyway, maybe not everything, but most things. So um, yeah, I think we're we're pretty much there. And and I just want to say on behalf of uh, all of us, how awesome it's been that you came on because, um, you know, now looking forward, you know, we're a Prince podcast. And so we are all about the legacy and thinking about, you know, what happened, how did it happen and, and putting a spotlight on, you know, all the, all of the key events. And this was a big album when it came out. We actually, this was the first album that came out after we started our podcast. And so for right. us, it was a big deal as well. It was really the first new album that we reviewed. So, you know, 10 years ago almost. And so, um, yeah, for us, it's, it's just been a thrill having you here and going through all those memories and, and sharing some of those funny moments, especially, I don't think we're, we're ever going to forget the Paris story now, um, <laughs> amongst a few, amongst a few others. So yeah, I just want to say thank you. And it's been really awesome. Thank you. I'm glad that you got something out of it. Um, this was super fun, actually. Uh, I'm glad we were able to talk this long. Thank you so much for taking the time and doing the good work anyway, and being so freaking prepared if you can if you figure out where you go <laughs> let me know i just want to know how how deep that goes <laughs> okay <laughs> no worries cool thank you well, Richard. Thank, have a good Thanks day again. and uh, we'll talk soon Excellent. you've been listening to another classic peach and black podcast Catch all our episodes at podbean.com, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Mixcloud, and all good podcast directories. Search for Peach and Black Podcast. Continue the Peach and Black experience online. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. The Peach and Black Podcast is written and produced by Rob S., Captain, Player, and Tojan. Original theme music by Tojan. Audio production and additional audio editing by Captain at Funky Temple Studios. Episode artwork by Reverend. Share our podcast with your friends and Prince fans. If you love our show, please write a review on iTunes. You can contact the Peach and Black Podcast at peachandblackpodcastofficial at gmail.com. <laughs>